Well, good evening, and it is our joy to get back to our Pentateuch series. To our series, we've been looking at the first five books of the, of the Bible, and I want to invite you to turn to Numbers chapter 1. Numbers chapter 1, and I'll bet that many of you have never heard a pastor say that. So, this is a record-breaking time. Turn to Numbers chapter 1, and as you're finding Numbers right after Leviticus... We're going to read the first four verses. Numbers chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, in the tent of meeting, on the first day of the second month, in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel by clans, by fathers' houses, according to the number of names, every male head by head. From 20 years old and upward, all in Israel who were able to go to war, you and Aaron shall list them company by company. And there shall be with you a man from each tribe, each man being the head of the house of his fathers. Well, there are numerous versions of this classic set of wedding vows. And it goes something like this, though. To have and to hold, for better or for worse, in sickness as in health, forsaking all others until death do us part. At Mount Sinai, a newly rescued Israel was given covenant vows by God. Marriage vows, so to speak. And they're summarized in the Ten Commandments. How did they respond? Exodus 24, verse 3, Moses came and told the people, all the words of the Lord and all the rules, here's their response, here are the vows, And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. What does that mean? Israel said, I do. I will. Israel had vows to keep, such as, You shall have no other gods before me, that is, forsaking all others. And God himself gave himself vows to keep. Here are God's vows. Exodus 19, beginning in verse 4, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Those are the vows that God gave. The book of Numbers leaves off where Exodus ends as far as chronology and travel. Leviticus is really more of an interlude of laws and holiness guidelines. Numbers records now Israel's moving from the Sinai Desert, eventually to the plains of Moab by the Jordan River at the east border of Canaan. Numbers covers for us a total of, of about 40 years. But if the book of Exodus with Mount Sinai as the venue, is the wedding, the numbers is the marriage. And how does the marriage go? Well, what we'll see in numbers is that the groom, God, will lavish love on his bride, Israel. And what will that look like? Well, they'll build a house together, the tabernacle. God will serve breakfast every day, manna. God will protect her from danger. God will hover over her in the Shekinah glory cloud of the presence of God. And God has promised her a new home 
the promised land of Canaan. But while God is lavishing love, faithful love, Israel the bride, what are they doing? She's grumbling about the food. She's blaming God's appointed representative of Moses for anything that seems to go wrong. She's refusing to go into the new land given by God. And she says she wants to go back to the abusive home she endured in Egypt to find a different husband, to find a different God. And so God must now mature this nation. He must woo them in love and with discipline. And so tonight, what I want to show you is that the book of Numbers is the story of the maturing of a nation. And it has direct implications and applications to the loyalty and the obedience of God's covenant people, whether under the old covenant or under the new covenant, the implications are the same. But first, let's just kind of get a lay of the land. Let's just kind of uh, evaluate the book as a whole. The title of the book, Numbers, is derived from the fact that the book contains two censuses. And I looked up that censuses is the correct plural for census. Chapters 1 and 26 are the censuses in Numbers. And there's also a separate census in the, of the Levites in chapters 3 and 4. And so you have the term Numbers. The title Numbers comes from the the Latin Vulgate. That's the late 4th century translation into Latin of the Old Testament. The title in the Latin Vulgate is Numeri. We get numbers. But that was taken from the Septuagint. That's the Greek translation of the Old Testament done in the 2nd century B.C. The Greek title is Arithmoi. And so, yes, technically speaking, for all you accountants and mathematicians, there is a book of the Bible called Arithmetic, Arithmoi. But don't get too excited, because in the Hebrew Bible, the title is simply In the Wilderness. And it's taken from the fifth Hebrew word in the first chapter, first verse, the Lord spoke to Moses, In the Wilderness. And so that's probably the real title. The Wilderness. What is that? Well, that's a relatively unpopulated piece of land between Egypt and Canaan. And the wilderness would become now synonymous with the place where God's people would either deepen their relationship and their trust in the Lord or doubt his power, doubt his goodness, doubt his abilities. Now, I think it's fair to say that the book of Numbers has a bad reputation. It has a bad reputation among professing Christians who probably have never read the book the general feeling is, why would I want to reach or read rather about a bunch of numbers? Well, let me give you two answers to that. First of all, you want to read about a bunch of numbers because it's the inspired word of God. And if you want to know and love and worship your God, the numbers is a beloved treasure to you because it paints a picture of God as faithful and true and devoted to his people. But let me give you a second answer. If you say, why would I want to read about a bunch of numbers? That reveals you probably never read the book because the book of the number, a book of numbers has very few numbers in it. Just a few. In fact, numbers is absolutely filled with variety. Numbers chapter six, we see the Nazarite vow. And if you understand the Nazarite vow, you understand men like the prophet Samuel and you understand John the Baptist. Chapter six also contains the blessing of Aaron, Moses' brother, It's probably the greatest blessing in all of the Pentateuch. Chapter 9, we see a touching Passover celebration and the cloud of God hovering over the tabernacle in the glory of God. 
Chapter 10, Israel leaves Sinai to head for the promised land. Well, after that, and I won't go through everything, but after that, you've got everything from plagues to spies to rebellion to battles to executions to people being swallowed by the earth to Aaron's staff growing flowers and almonds to miraculous water to fiery serpents to more battles to wicked neighboring kings. How about this? A talking donkey and a priest spearing two sinners with one spear. No, it's a mistake to think that numbers is merely about numbers. In fact, the book of Numbers contains more variety of literary styles and genres than any other book of the Bible. It contains narrative, poetry, prophecy, victory song, prayer, blessings, satire, diplomatic letter, civil law, religious law, a court ruling, a census list, temple archives, and, just for good measure, an itinerary. Now, very clearly, This is an inspired text given by the Holy Spirit with great variety. And and by the way, the unity of the text is nothing short of of jaw-dropping. Now, what do I mean by the unity of the text? Well, the book of Numbers has this overarching two-part structure. And each part begins with a census. Chapter 1 begins with the census of all those Israelites who left Egypt. And chapter 26 begins with the census of the second generation of Israelites after the first generation dropped dead in the wilderness. But here's what I mean by the unity. You have these two sections, chapters 1 through 25 and chapters 26 through 36. The unity is stunning because both those sections take place over a period of 40 years or so, but in both sections, parallel to one another, you have a census of the nation, a census of the Levites in particular, a legal treatise regarding women, laws concerning vows, lists and laws about offerings, Passover celebration or discussion, priests blowing trumpets, a list of spies from 12 tribes and a list of leaders from 12 tribes, a spy story and a spy story recalled. You have geographical notes about Israel's journey in both. You have victory over kings of Sihon, King Sihon and Og and the allotment of their captured land in both. And you have dealings with the wicked Midianites in both. And listen, this is not just some guy making up a story and saying, hey, wouldn't it be neat if we just had two parallel sections? This isn't somebody making up a story. This is God providentially guiding the events which makes up the book of Numbers over the course of four decades, events which parallel one another. Chapters 1 to 25 and 26 to 36. You should be in awe of Numbers. Numbers should lead you to praise God, to be in wonder at God, to marvel at the sovereignty of God. Now, to be fair, if you are listening tonight and you're hearing the Pentateuch message with us for the very first time. Let me get you caught up just a little. We left off some months ago at the end of Leviticus in our overall study of the Pentateuch. And if you haven't been a part of this, the best way you can get caught up is I want to encourage you to go to our Steadfast in the Faith website, steadfastinthefaith.org, and listen to the Pentateuch Series 1. The Pentateuch Series 1. In that, you'll get five introductory messages teaching you how to understand the Pentateuch, how to understand the first five books of the Bible. And in that series, I cover an introduction to the introduction, 
the theological center of the Pentateuch, the Christian in the Old Testament law, the Christian in the Old Testament story, and how to grasp life in Bible times. And I would say that would be a great COVID-19 listening activity to do in the next week. But for those of you who have been along for this entire journey, you'll recall that for each book of the Pentateuch, I've chosen a key word. A key word to help us grasp kind of the main thrust of the book. And every sermon title in each book contains that key word. And just to review, the key word of Genesis is kingdom. The key word of Exodus is Israel. The key word of Leviticus is holiness. And so what do you think it'll be for numbers? The key word for numbers is maturity. Maturity. And so tonight, to introduce the book of Numbers, I want to show you that Numbers is the story of the maturing of a nation. It's the story of a maturing of a nation. And by the way, the maturity of the nation happens through the death of the first generation and God's blessing on the second generation, passing the torch to them. In fact, that two-part structure forms the basis for understanding the maturity of the nation. So we're just going to do a quick flyover of those two sections. Chapters 21 through 25 we'll call the rebellious phase. And chapters 26 through 36 we'll call the respectful phase. So the rebellious phase and the respectful phase. First, the rebellious phase. I want to just show you a few examples of what the rebellious phase looks like. Turn to Numbers chapter 11. Numbers chapter 11, and we'll just read the first few verses to kind of set the scene here. Very good example of what's happening when they're rebelling. Numbers chapter 11, verse 1. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Tabera because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Tabera just means burning or to burn. Now, the Lord has given basically a shot across the bow. He's given a warning. But do they listen? Verse 4, Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. Who is the rabble? If we look carefully in the book of Exodus, we see that it wasn't just Israelites that left. There were a few Egyptians that came with them. And here they're the rabble, and they influence the Israelites so that the Israelites also weep and say, oh, that we could go back to Egypt. And then they start bemoaning how wonderful it used to be in Egypt. God has, by the way, been literally raining food on them, manna from heaven, And all they can say in the following verses is, oh, remember the free fish and remember all the fruits and the vegetables and the spices we had? Completely forgetting, yes, and remember that we were slaves and we were outcasts in Egypt and remember that our people were beaten and worked and at times our babies were being murdered. And so the Lord responds with a mixed blessing. Look at verse 31 of chapter 11. In many of your Bibles, the Bible publisher has put a heading to this section in verse 31 called something like quail and a plague. 
God punished the people with the very object of their mistrust and their lust. He sent more quail than you could possibly eat in a lifetime. He sent a a feast. And yet, look at verse 33. While the meat was yet between their teeth, it was consumed. Before it was consumed, rather, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people. And the Lord struck down the people with a very great plague. Therefore, the name of that place was called Kibrath Hata'avah. Because there they buried the people who had the craving. That name just means the graves of craving. Quail and a plague. That's like saying, come get steak and a beating. Or come get turkey and a tumor. It's this odd mixed blessing. It is the discipline of God. God has literally been raining food on them in the form of manna. And all they could do was complain and rebel. Another instance of their rebellion, turn to chapter 16. Chapter 16, now, because of the rebellion of chapter 14, in which the people refused to enter the promised land given by God, in chapter 14, verse 29, God declares that this first generation is going to drop dead in the wilderness until the next generation is ready to obey him. And now, in chapter 16, we have the famous rebellion of Korah. Chapter 16, verse 1 Now Korah, the son of Ezar, son of Kohath, son of Levi, and Dathan, and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Pelath, sons of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with a number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation, chosen from the assembly, well-known men. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far. From all in the congregation, for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? When Moses heard it, he fell on his face, and he said to Korah and all his company, In the morning the Lord will show who is his, and who is holy, and will bring him near to him. The one whom he chooses, he will bring near to him. Now we have a fight. Korah, Dathan, Abiram. They're issuing a direct challenge to the God-ordained leadership of Moses. And at God's instruction, Moses told the people then to separate themselves from the households of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. In verse 24, Moses said to all the people, basically, if these men die natural deaths, they die of old age, then I am not God's man. But if the ground swallows them up, then I am. And look at chapter 16, verse 31. And as soon as he had finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol and the earth closed over them and they perished from the midst of of the assembly. Well, what about those 250 men who stood with them? Maybe they're going to get out of this. Not so fast. Verse 35. And the fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men offering the incense. Okay. Now Israel has learned its lesson, right? Now she'll be a godly follower of Yahweh. Wrong. Chapter 21. Turn with me to chapter 21. Will they begin to soften as a nation even a little? Maybe a little now. 
but they haven't learned yet. But there will be some softening. Chapter 21, verse 4. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water. And we loathe this worthless food, meaning the food raining from heaven from God. Verse 6. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. And they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. Now you would think that by now, God's people would begin to learn. And as a nation, it seems that they're beginning very, very slowly to mature and to get it. Just a little. Verse 7. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. But overall, in chapters 1 through 25, Israel is characterized by rebellion. So how's the marriage going so far? In just those three incidents, those three alone, the wife, Israel, has repeatedly rebelled. The husband has repeatedly disciplined the wife with fire, plagues, the earth swallowing people, and poisonous snakes. But in addition to that, those were just three samples. In addition to that, Moses' own siblings, Miriam and Aaron, opposed Moses in chapter 12. The Israelites withered in fear of the Canaanites in chapters 13 and 14. They fight and lose their first battle in chapter 14. They have their first execution in chapter 15. Moses himself disobeyed the Lord in chapter 20. Edom, their kinsmen through Esau, the brother of Jacob, refused to let Israel pass through their lands in chapter 20. Both Miriam and Aaron die in chapter 20. The men of Israel, this is really kind of the final straw here, The men of Israel begin open sexual immorality with the pagan women of Moab in chapter 25. And one man flagrantly takes for himself into the camp of Israel a princess of the Midianites. And both are killed in righteousness by the priest Phinehas with a spear. But until that happened, God had still punished 24,000 with a plague, with death, until that execution occurred. And because of all this, death and suffering was rampant. Chapter 11, verse 1, God's fire consuming the outskirts of the camp. Chapter 11, verse 33, a severe plague from God. Chapter 12, verse 10, God struck Miriam with leprosy. Chapter 14, verse 37, God struck men with a plague. Chapter 16, verse 32, the earth swallows Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, and all their family, and all their stuff, like they never existed Chapter 16, verse 35, fire from the Lord consumes 250 men. Chapter 16, verse 49, 14,700 people die from a plague from God. Chapter 20, verse 28, Aaron is condemned to die before entering the promised land. And so he dies at the word of the Lord. In chapter 25, verse 9, 24,000 die of a plague because of the taking of women of Moab and the Midianite princess in sexual immorality. Oh, yes. And the entire first generation, except for Moses and two loyal men, 
Joshua and Caleb all die. Upwards of two to three million people. So far, this is not, and they lived happily ever after. God has done all the loving and Israel has done all the rebelling. So we've seen the rebellious phase of Israel's maturing. But now we come to the respectful phase. The respectful phase. And so as God is teaching Israel, teaching the next generation, the next generation grows. And they do much better. It's kind of like the younger sibling that sees the older sibling get the spanking of the century and decides, I think I'm going to shape up. I don't want to go through that. So turn with me to chapter 26. Chapter 26, and now the tone completely changes. And in fact, you can immediately see the contrast. It's just almost matter of fact. But chapter 26, verse 1 starts with, after the plague. You can see that things are going to be different now. Now God orders the second census. God has continued to be faithful to Israel. At the end of the first census, this is important, the number of fighting age men, age 20 and up, is listed at 603,550. Chapter 1, verse 46. After that entire generation has died, look with me at chapter 26, verse 51, probably on your opposite page. Chapter 26, verse 51. This was the list of the people of Israel, 601,730. That's a difference of about 1,820 men or slightly less than a 1% difference of the number of fighting men. God has been faithful He's completely replaced the first generation. If this second generation were making t-shirts, they would t-shirts would probably say Generation W for wilderness babies. And they have a completely different experience. Completely different. In fact, go back to chapter 21. In chapter 21, now while the 38 years of wilderness wandering is 40 years total with stops at Mount Sinai and a couple of other pauses, God is still winnowing out here near the end, the last of the first generation. And toward the end of that time, the second generation of Israel, of Israel's men now comprise the bulk of the fighting force. And because they're taking the mantle of blessing from their fathers, the Lord gives them success in God's plan to judge the Canaanites through Israel. And so although we're still in the first section of rebellion, it's toward the end of that time. And we start to see God's hand of blessing turning to the second generation Look with me at chapter 21, verse 21. Then Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, saying, Let me pass through your land. We will not turn aside into field or vineyard. We will not drink the water of a well. We will go by the king's highway until we have passed through your territory. But Sihon would not allow Israel to pass through his territory. He gathered all his people together and went out against Israel to the wilderness and came to Jahaz and fought against Israel. And Israel defeated him with the edge of the sword and took possession of the land from the Arnon to the Jabbok, those are rivers, as far as to the Ammonites, for the border of the Ammonites was strong. And Israel took all these cities, and Israel settled in all the cities of the Amorites, in Heshbon, and in all its villages. And then we see in verse 31, Thus Israel lived in the land of the Amorites, and Moses sent to spy out Jazer, and they captured its villages and dispossessed the Amorites who were there. Then they turned and went up by the way to Bashan. And Og, the king of Bashan, came out against them, he and all his people, to battle at Edre. But 
But the Lord said to Moses, Do not fear him, for I have given him into your hand and all his people and his land. And you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon. So they defeated him and his sons and all his people until he had no survivor left, and they possessed his land. This second generation is doing precisely what God called them to do, to be the instrument of his justice and his retribution against the pagan human sacrificing nations who have now become squatters on Israel's promised land. And now good things begin to happen to this second generation. They begin being blessed because they're obeying and following their God. They're submitting to their king. They're loving their sovereign. They're being in peace with their heavenly husband. Turn with me to chapter 27. Chapter 27, God instructs Moses on the succession of leadership, the succession of responsibility, the next leader of Israel. Chapter 27, look with me at verse 18. Very, very exciting, very, very uplifting to the nation. Chapter 27, verse 18. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Make him stand before Eleazar the priest and all the congregation, and you shall commission him in their sight. You shall invest him with some of your authority that all the congregation of the people of Israel may obey. And he shall stand before Eleazar the priest who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. At his word they shall go out and at his word they shall come in, both he and all the people of Israel with him, the whole congregation. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He took Joshua and made him stand before Eleazar the priest and the whole congregation, and he laid his hands on him and commissioned him as the Lord directed him through Moses. What an exciting day. What, what a huge, momentous moment. Joshua, the one who would lead Israel to their home, lead them into the promised land. And now that the rebels have died off, now that they're gone, God renews the routine of the worship life of his people, once again, he teaches them yet again the proper sacrifices and the feasts with which they would express their love and their loyalty and their fidelity and their thankfulness to God. And so in chapters 28 and 29, this second generation receives instructions about daily offerings, about Sabbath offerings, the monthly offering, Passover, the Feast of Firstfruits, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Booths and Tabernacles. Why is this so important? Because God now has a people who desire Him, who want to worship Him. They long to obey. They long to receive blessing from them. So with joy, once again, He gives the worshipful life routine that ought to characterize the faithful follower of God under the covenant of love and grace that He's made with them at Mount Sinai. We get to chapter 30, and chapter 30 contains a small section to the youthful Israelites protecting young women from having to keep rash vows or promises they've made, which might derail their lives, very protective. And remember the Midianite princess who was the epitome of the sin of Israel's men in taking foreign women who would morally pollute Israel back in chapter 25? Well, at the end of chapter 25, God commanded that his vengeance be taken on Midian for their deceit and tricking Israel's men. Now, in chapter 31, verse 1, God had commanded in 25, 
that vengeance be taken on Midian, chapter 31, verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Avenge the people of Israel on the Midianites. Afterward, you shall be gathered to your people. And the rest of the chapter, 54 verses worth, details how Israel just levels Midian. And they take everything that they owned at God's command. And you go through the rest of the book, and the rest of the book is basically the preparations that the faithful ones, the second generation of Israel, the preparations they make to enter the promised land. And finally, for the first time in their history as a people, they're going to come home. They're going to be home. They have matured. So what can we take from just a quick look at the book of Numbers? I want to give you three very clear lessons here. Three clear lessons. The first clear lesson is be like the second generation. Be like the second generation. The story of Numbers is open-ended. What does that mean? Well, it means that anyone reading the book of Numbers under any time and under any covenant, whether the in the subsequent generations after Moses or whether it's us as being under the new covenant in Christ, anyone reading this open-ended book can clearly see the choice. The first generation were grumblers, complainers. They were spoiled. They were unfit for service to God. They were ungrateful for his rescue of them. And remember this, listen, the first generation who were the grumblers and the complainers and the spoiled ones, these are literally the same people who walked through the Red Sea and looked to one side and the other and saw walls of water held back by God. And then they got to the other side and they turned and they watched as Pharaoh's army coming after them is consumed by the walls coming down upon them. These are the same people. And so what does this call for? To be like the second generation. Well, it calls for a humble walk with the Lord Ephesians 4.2 tells us with all humility and gentleness with patience that we're to bear with one another in love. That's the outworking of humility. It's the outworking of being like the second generation. Philippians 2 verse 3 tells us to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit but in, in humility to count others more significant than yourselves. Be like the second generation. James 4 verse 10 we're commanded humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you That's the lesson of the second generation. Be like them. Humble yourself before the Lord. There's a second clear lesson. A second clear lesson. Trust God or be destroyed. Trust God or be destroyed. God had provided the only way for Israel to survive as a nation. He had effected their escape from the most powerful nation on earth, Egypt, If Israel had stayed in Egypt, Egypt would have consumed them as a a nation. They would have eventually had their identity just erased. And once they left, it wasn't much better. Now they're in the wilderness without enough food or water to sustain the nation of several million people. It was either trust God or be destroyed. And so God lovingly enforced his covenant with severe discipline In fact, what should have been a trip of just several weeks to the promised land turned into four decades of discipline. Why was God so intent on keeping his nation pure? Well, the stakes are high. 
They're so very high. If Israel doesn't survive, then Christ doesn't come to be the Savior of all who would believe on him. But listen, that lesson, trust God or be destroyed, it's exactly the same today. Jesus told a short parable in John 10, verse 1. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. In the case anyone didn't get the metaphor, a few verses later, Jesus clarified, I am the door. In other words, Jesus is the only legitimate way into the sheepfold, into the people of God. The Apostle Peter confronted the rulers of Jerusalem who had crucified Jesus, and he urged them concerning Christ. He invited them. He said, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved in Acts chapter 4. What did many in the first generation of of Israel, what did they want to do? They wanted to forsake God and go back to Egypt. They were not genuine followers. They were not loyal believers. They were not truly part of the bride of Yahweh And as soon as God didn't meet their expectations, their selfish purposes, as soon as God didn't give everything that they wanted, they bolted and they rebelled. And listen, I can't even imagine, I can't even begin to imagine the the horror and the shock and the weeping and the wailing at the great white throne judgment when all the religious people of history who never submitted to Christ and Christ alone are told by Christ himself as recorded in Matthew chapter 7, verse 23, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Horror, shock, weeping, gnashing of teeth, wailing. Because at that point, there are no more second chances. Let me give you a third clear lesson. You must choose whom you will serve. You must choose whom you will serve Korah, Dathan, Abiram, they rebelled against God's chosen servant, God's designated representative, and God took that as rebelling against him and how it cost them. How high are the consequences of rebellion? They were publicly humiliated. Then they died the horrifying death of being buried alive with their entire families. Or you could consider Moses and Caleb and Joshua, the only men of the first generation to survive. Just those three. Caleb and Joshua, the faithful spies who believed God would give them victory over their enemies in Canaan and said, let's go, let's trust the Lord. Let's believe the provision that he's given. He is our God. And of course, it's with respect and awe that we see, and we're not surprised at all, that after the conquest of Canaan, Who is it that challenges Israel? It is Joshua. Faithful Joshua. In Joshua 24, verse 15, he says, Choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, what? We will serve the Lord. You must make a choice. And you might say, well, I don't want to choose. I just want to stay neutral. If you say, I don't want to choose, then you have chosen. Because there's no getting out of this. In all of history, 
And in all of the Bible, there are only two categories of people. First category are those who will stand before God after their deaths and hear these words. Well done, good and faithful servant. Matthew 25, 23. The other category are those who will stand before God after their deaths and hear, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. You might say, I don't believe that. Let me ask you a question. Having no way to prove that I'm wrong, are you willing to bet your eternity that you're right on a wild guess just because you don't like it? You must choose whom you will serve. And by not choosing, you have chosen. And could I implore you to choose Christ, to come to Christ and come to the blessing. Be like the second generation. Well, our theme in Numbers is going to be spiritual maturity. Let me give you a quick rundown of what our fast-paced walk through this book is going to look like. We'll do 10 more messages And we'll look at spiritual maturity through obedience, spiritual maturity through worship, spiritual maturity through trials, through faith, through discipline, through transitions, through trust, through virtue, through thankfulness, and through preparation. That'll be our theme as we walk through Numbers. But let me ask you a question. What are you going to do with the book of Numbers? What are you going to do with it? Because in Numbers, you will find yourself, every one of you, are in this book. Are you Moses, Caleb, and Joshua, faithful men who trust the Lord? Are you Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, unfaithful men who were destroyed by God? Are you the untrusting first generation who feared everything and trusted nothing that they couldn't see? Are you the trusting second generation who has grown in maturity and in trust in the Lord and is brought home safely? Let the book of Numbers examine your soul and diagnose your heart because it will do so with great precision like a scalpel cutting into your heart, into your soul to see what's there. Let the book of Numbers do that. And then as the bride of Christ, the church, you also can be faithful to your heavenly husband. Let's go to the Lord in a moment of prayer. Our Father, we thank you for this book. It presents such a clear call to be a worshiper of the true and living God. And of course, with our New Testament revelation, we understand that Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And so to be a true worshiper of God, we must be a true worshiper of Christ. And I would pray for all listening to this that they would desire to be like the second generation, to follow God, to humble themselves before God, to repent of sin, to be obedient, to be filled with joy at following our heavenly husband, our heavenly father. And Lord, for those who are already believers in Christ hearing this, I pray that you would give them throughout this series a renewed vim and vigor for obedience seeing the dire consequences of pushing back against you, pushing back against your word of reprogramming ourselves, so to speak, to obey only those things that we think are good instead of complete obedience in all things 
submitting ourselves to you in all things. Help us not to even come close to being like Korah and Dathan and Abiram, but help us to be like Moses and Caleb and Joshua. That we choose this day to serve Christ and to obey the law of Christ as revealed in the New Testament. Bless every person listening to this, Lord. And now, as families are together in in their living rooms or their family rooms watching this time together, I pray that their hearts would be filled with joy having heard the word of God. And even now, Lord, I pray that they would take a moment and they would be thankful in prayer and that they would love one another and be thankful for the word of God, which is so clear, so rich. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen. Right now in your homes, wherever you are, take just a moment. The live stream's gonna, or the, the recording here's gonna go off in a minute. But I want you to take just a couple of minutes and reflect on this and perhaps offer a prayer of your own to the Lord asking him to nail these nails deeply into your hearts and into your minds. The Lord bless all of you and you spend a moment here in prayer in your own homes. Lord bless you.